We've been going through Paul's letter to the Corinthians and we're up to the very last chapter and I thought I might finish off this, this wonderful letter that Paul has written to a church that was uh, yeah, in real need of his advice. And then from next week we'll start really gearing up and thinking about what incredible things Jesus has done for us at Christmas. For those who want to follow along, we're reading from uh, 1 Corinthians 16, starting from verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they'll accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and, and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord, just as I am. No one, then, should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go, with, uh, go to you with the brothers, but he was quite unwilling to go now. But he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. When we come to like these last chapters of the letters that Paul and the other disciples wrote in the early church, it feels a little bit like we're listening in on a conversation that we're not a part of. And all of these you know, people are sending their greetings and talking to one another We've covered all the the churchy parts of the letter, all the bits about, 
you know, how we should live as God's people. And now we've kind of got this, this outro with all these personal greetings and these uh, you know, comments. And What do we do with all of these bits? What, is, what does God expect us to do with these ends of the letters in our Bibles? Why was it when they were collating these for the Bible, they didn't just cut off the personal bits at the start and the end and just you know, keep in the bits about you know, how to live as God's people? I mean, these bits, they weren't written to us and then the people they were written to are long dead. So what does it matter that Paul wanted to go through Macedonia? Why does it matter that Asilla, uh, Asilla, Priscilla and Aquila sent their greetings I think it's precisely because the endings of these letters are so personal that they have a lot to teach us. They have a lot that we can take away from them. Because it reminds us that everything we've seen so far that Paul has written has not been a textbook of of things that he knows about God. But it's been a letter written to people that he has a relationship with. That it's about him reaching out to the people that he loves and he cares about and you know his expectations of how God is calling them to love and care for one another. And so with that in mind, Paul begins this section with a call for them to give generously to a need in Jerusalem. And at this time there was a famine uh, in, in the area of Judea and the, the um, You know, the people in the church there were doing things very tough. And so the churches around Galatia and and all the places that Paul had been thus far in his missionary missionary journey had been collecting some money to give to their brothers and sisters in need. So Paul's call for the Corinthians to do the same, to give to the needy in in Jerusalem, is a call for them to, to care for their family. The Jerusalem church might be far away, but they were brothers and sisters who were experiencing famine and need. And so this collection is, you know, not just, you know, for a good cause, it's for family, it's for the Lord's people who they and who we are a part of. And Paul takes it for granted that this, the Corinthian church, they will give to those in need. Jesus, of course, said some strong things about uh, those who wouldn't give to those in need. Famously, you know, in his parable of the sheep and the goats, he talks about, you know, you, you saw me thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. You saw me in prison and you didn't visit me. And they'll answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he'll reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did not do for me. Likewise, his disciple John wrote, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And in In his letter to Timothy, Paul writes, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
There's a fundamental expectation that God's people will look after those in need, especially, you know, there is a special call to look after the church family as well, but also to be generous with all who need help. Because generosity isn't just a nice thing, but it's an essential part of being a family. And you think of your family, what kind of family would it be if while one person was was struggling and suffering, the rest of the family did nothing? You might be related by blood, but at that stage, is that really family? And that's the same sort of thing that, that Paul is saying about the church. So what does Paul tell us here that we can, we can take away about giving to brothers and sisters in Christ that are you know, in churches around the world that are suffering and in need? Well, there's two things that I think we can, we can take, two things to note about what Paul says to them. We read in verse 2, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul encourages us, one, to be intentional in our giving. That at every week, at the start of the week, that putting a bit of money aside is an intentional act. It's not just you know, waiting for there to necessarily be a need that's right in our face, but it's about choosing to take some of our money and, and put that aside knowing that God will have a use for it, that there will be a place that we can give. And there are great organisations that can help to take our money and give it to those who are in need that we might not ever personally meet or have anything to do with. So Paul encourages us to be intentional in our giving. But he also encourages us to be proportional in our giving. He tells us, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. In another letter, Paul says, the point is not so that we impoverish one church so that another church can live in luxury. The point is, when you've got enough, you can give to those who don't have enough. And then when you don't have enough, they can give to you. And look after you. The Bible isn't calling us to poverty necessarily, but it does call us to generosity. It does call us to look at what we have and look at you know, what is excess to what we need and to think about how that we can be generous in accordance with our income. That's the kind of giving that Paul calls for. Giving that is intentional and giving that is proportional. Now, one thing to note on that, when it comes to giving to those in need, I think Aussies in general are really bad at asking for help when we're in need. Does, anybody, does anyone disagree with that? But one thing that's wonderful is the gospel frees us from this you know, worldview of needing to have self-reliance and this idea that if you ever need help, that means you've failed. And instead, in the gospel, it reminds us that we all need help. The gospel reminds us that we all needed a saviour 
And we all need help sometimes. And so we're free to ask for the help that we need. So Paul says that as God's people, and as I said, he's writing this to people that he's in relationship with. We are a family. God has made us a family. And it's important that we care for one another. It's imperative that we care for one another. Because that's what it means to be God's family and to be like God. And we are a family because of Jesus. John 1 tells us that for those who have believed in Jesus, we've been given the right to be called children of God. And that is what we are. And that means that in some very real ways, we've got more in common with people that we've never met in Kenya or Cambodia or Bolivia, people who've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ than we do with many people in our community. God has made us a family made of every nation, tribe and tongue. But it wasn't easy for God to make us family. God made us to be family with him and one another in the very beginning. He made man and woman in his image. He made us to have relationship with him perfectly and with one another perfectly. But when we chose to instead put ourselves in God's place, when we chose to do what we thought was right, And let ourselves determine what is right and wrong for myself. Sin drove a dividing wall between our relationship with God, but also between our relationship with one another. What's one of the very first things that comes after that first sin and and Adam and Eve come out of the garden? We have two brothers who should love each other. And instead Cain murders his brother Abel. And just as the sin has, sin has driven a wedge, put a wall between us and God in our relationships, it's put a wall between us and other people that God has made. But in dying on the cross for us, like Jesus did, in paying the price for our sin, Jesus made us to be family again. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Once you were not a people, Peter tells us, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God has made us a family once more after our sin had ruined everything. But it came at an incredible cost. And this is why it's so important that as a family brought together by the blood of Jesus that we care for one another. And that's why Paul made such a big deal of his plans of why he wanted to come and visit them and why he wanted to wait until there was such a time that he could actually come and spend a proper amount of time with his friends in the church in Corinth rather than, you know, just fly-by-night visit. 
why he spoke about going and visiting the church in Philippi on his way through Macedonia, because this is his family. And it reads at the end like, you know, the sort of letter you would expect from a family. And as I noted at the start, Paul's relational things that he writes here in the end reminds us that all that he has written was not to be a theological textbook of his ideas about God. But it was him writing to a church that really needed some help and some advice and helping them to see how that they should live in light of the things that God has showed us about himself. Paul's right teaching is for, is for them to live out in community, not just things for them to know in their head, but to shape all that they do. And it reminds us, it encourages us to think about how do the things that I know about God affect how I live? How does my knowledge about Jesus affect how I relate to the person on, on the chair next to me or you know, in the next row along from me here in this church today? How does knowing God's love for me encourage me to love others? How does God's generosity towards me encourage me to be generous to others? How does knowing the cost at which our unity was brought encourage me to remain united with my brothers and sisters who I love even when we disagree on things? How does knowing the gospel Help me to live my life well and encourage other people in that to live lives shaped by that same gospel. And that's the note that Paul finishes his letter on, a number of exhortations for how they, the church, can live out the things that they have heard. Paul gives the Corinthians and us several exhortations of how we should live, which is in some ways summing up some of the key ideas from this whole letter. Be on your guard, he says. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. These are all imperative verbs. These are all commands that he is giving and summing up. This is how you live what you have learned. They needed to be on their guard. On guard against divisions over things that didn't really matter, like we saw in the early chapters. And wouldn't it be nice to be able to say that 2,000 years later, Christians weren't dividing over things that didn't really matter? Are we going to be divided over, you know, politics? Are we going to be divided over changing the carpets in the church? That's caused divisions in churches before. Are we going to be divided over things like vaccines, which I know people have different views on? Oh, even if we don't you know, storm out and say we have nothing to do with one another, is, do our differences cause us to think less of one another? To want to have less to do with somebody else for whom Christ died? Does 
Who they vote for change how we see them. Be on your guard for divisions that don't matter. Be on your guard for false teaching like those who'd come into this church and told them that the resurrection wasn't actually going to happen. That's probably not one that we'd fall for so much here. But be on our guard for false teachings that tell us all God wants for our lives is for us to have all the money and the comfort we could ever want in this life here. That's a lovely, lovely thought, but it isn't the gospel. God does care for us and give us lots of good things, but our hope for his best life for us is the life that is to come. Be on guard against things that proclaim that they're the gospel. On the other end, be on guard against the teachings that say, you need to work harder, be better, be you know, more, read the Bible more, pray more, and then maybe God will be happy with you. Be on your guard against things that are not the gospel. Be firm, be courageous, be strong. The Corinthians didn't like being thought of as foolish for believing in a resurrected saviour. They didn't like being laughed at. I don't really like being laughed at either. I don't like people thinking I'm an idiot. But I have to embrace the fact that sometimes people will think that because I follow Jesus. To be firm. To be courageous. To be bold enough to hold on to what the Bible says even when it is, well, I was going to say unpopular, but probably even beyond that, to when it is hated by the world around us. And finally, and I think Paul would say most importantly, given what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, do everything in love. He said you could you know, talk in the tongues of angels, you could give all that you have to the poor, you could do all sorts of incredible things, but if you don't have love, it means nothing. And so in wrapping up his letter, he says, Do everything in love. You have to love Jesus, otherwise you're not a Christian. Love Jesus for the love that he has shown to you. And love one another. Do it all in love. And sometimes it can be easy to do things in duty because we feel that we should do them. Do them because we think God will be angry with us if we don't. Be careful not to fall into that trap, but be reminded and be encouraged by Paul to do everything in love. And if we're finding that hard, you don't love somebody more by just you know, trying to muster up more love in your heart like you're tensing a muscle. We do it by, like we sing about almost every week, turning our eyes upon Jesus by thinking about what he's done for us and his love for us and reflecting upon that. And then that's where the love comes from, from knowing his love for us. Paul encourages us in this end of the letter, he's needed to correct and encourage this church in Corinth. We all might need to be corrected and encouraged sometimes. Sometimes. 
corrected that we're dividing over something that we should not be dividing over. Be corrected that our love has run dry and we're acting out of duty. Be corrected that we're making a compromise on something that is sin. Be corrected that we might have gone silent on the parts of God's word that people don't want to hear about. We won't get it all right on our own, which is why God hasn't left us on our own. But in his wisdom and in his love, he has given us one another, a family, a community of encouragement, of people there to build one another up, encourage one another, and even, yes, lovingly correct one another when we need to. Can we correct each other in love if we need to? You think of the difference of like a teacher giving a student back a, an exam paper covered in red marks and you know red text. I don't know if they still do the, the, the red pen. And the, you know, coming up and embarrassing them in front of the class and punishing them and sending them as opposed to the teacher that likewise has a paper with a lot of red marks and says like, you, you clearly you need a little bit of help with this so let's like, come and, and spend some time and we're going to try and help you to understand better it makes it you know both students might have failed their papers but love makes a big difference doesn't it Can we correct one another in love? And also, the flip side, can we receive correction in love if we need it? We're encouraged by this relational part of this, the closing of this letter that we need one another, that we're united in Jesus because of what he has done for us at the cross. And although it's good to take what Jesus has done on the cross as a personal thing, he died on the cross for me because of his love for me, we also need to be reminded he died on the cross for us. And he did that to make us a community. And so nothing we will do in life is as important as what we do for the us what we do for the men and women around us for whom Christ died, the people that he calls us to be a family with, to serve one another, like those people that, you know, sure, we might not know Stephanus and Achaicus and, you know, what they were like, but to look to people who serve God's church in love and say, I want to be like that person. And follow their example as they follow the example of Christ. And in building up one another and loving one another, we're readying one another for eternity with the God who loves us and who gave his life for us, that we can be called children of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word to us today.
And while there are parts that were really written specifically to that one church 2,000 years ago, thank you for the reminder that just as they were a family and as this was written in, in a loving relationship, you call us to be a family. We pray that you would help us to love and support and build up one another. We pray that you will help us to do all that we do in love. And when we struggle with that, to not strive harder, but to look more towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. And pray that